All right, well, we're going to be in Luke chapter 5, if you would turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab a Bible out of the pew rack right there in front of you. It's good to have the sword as we look to the Word of God to let it transform us. It is living and active. Um, we are uh, back in our series, Written So That You May Believe. I know Alistair had talked about it a few weeks ago when he started preaching. He said, you know, it's been over a year, or almost a year to the date since he last preached, and I know we will remedy that, Alistair. We'll make sure we get you on, on there. But I looked back to the last time I preached in this series, and it, was, it had been over a year since, since I had been there preaching in that, so uh, neat to come back to that and to, to revisit. And it is one of those ongoing series, uh, similar to the Psalms, uh, as we go through the summer in the Psalms, that'll probably take several years to get through, but it's great to be back uh, in, in this series called Written So That You May Believe, and it is a harmony of the gospel, right? It's, it's the, uh, the, the gospel accounts. And, and through this series, series, I really think it's important for us to realize and understand um, we don't come to the gospels in this series as we, as we try to harmonize what Jesus taught and what he did. We don't come to it just for information, right? I, I'm a history buff, so sometimes I come to things for that purpose. Like, I want to I know what happened and how it happened. But what's really important is not only to know what happened and, and how it happened and maybe why it happened, right? But to what? To, to figure out how can we apply that to our lives? Like history classes are taught in, in, in our country, they should be taught right in anywhere, that we don't repeat mistakes from the past, right? Uh, the same is true as we go to the scriptures. We see the life of Jesus and we shouldn't say, oh, that was really neat, Jesus. We should say, wow, look at what Jesus did and what he taught. How does that apply to me? So we don't go to the gospels. We don't go to the word of God for information only, but we go to the God for transformation, that you and I would be transformed. Now, Alistair, in the last few sermons, has covered uh, a few things about Jesus. Um, right before his started, we left off last time, we, over a year ago, with the, the right Messiah, that Jesus was the right Messiah for the time and for, uh, for all, of, all of time, for all of eternity, and to fulfill the law. Uh, and then as Alistair prepared and preached his sermons, uh, he went into Jesus showing himself as this right Messiah, confirming uh, he is and, and uh, who God sent him to be. Uh, that Christ was made uh, was one who can make the unclean clean. That's what Jesus does. He makes the unclean clean. Right? Any of you out there unclean? Right? Only a couple. Yeah, we're all unclean. Right? Jesus makes us clean. The Messiah can do that. And 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 further, he talked about how um, he he healed the the paralytic. Right? But he didn't just heal the paralytic. He forgave the sins through the paralytic's faith and through his friend's faith. Right? This is a savior who doesn't just come to heal. But he comes to forgive, and really, that's the, the crux of our healing, right? Uh, our ailments, our, our physical um, issues, will, will, if they're healed, will come back again, right? At some point, this body will wear out and die, but ultimately, Jesus knows what we really need, and that is the forgiveness of our sin, and he's the one that can do that. Now, all the while, this is the right Messiah, and as the right Messiah comes, the wrong people, the wrong teachers are like, I don't like this. He's ruffling our feathers. I'm not, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. So he's going to get a lot of flack, and ultimately, they're going to begin conspiring against Jesus. We'll see in the next few weeks uh, as we preach through this, this te uh, the text. We'll see how they come against Christ. So Alistair talked about making the unclean clean. He talked about uh, Jesus healing uh, and forgiving the sins of the paralytic. And then last week, we saw the call to Levi, right, who was a tax collector, despised. Whether he was an honest tax collector or not, it doesn't matter. He was despised by everybody. And for, for Jesus to talk to him, to call him out, and then for, for Matthew, Levi, Matthew now, to respond in faith saying, yes, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then to go to a banquet where he throws a party and invites all of his sinner friends, 
all, all the religious leaders, even the disciples, are looking like, what is going on? This, isn't, this is just outside of the norm. He's, he's taking these, these things that we would consider right and wrong, and he's just throwing them on their head. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's doing. So we need to learn from this, right? See, he saw through who Levi was or who, who he was viewed to be, and he was willing to forgive and, and to bring him into the kingdom of God. What a Savior we have. So for you and I who are like, who are like Matthew or Levi's, who maybe were despised by people, maybe we were thought to be unclean or were thought to be sinners, isn't it amazing that we have a, a gracious Messiah who's willing to, to call us out of our sin and, and forgive us our sin and invite us into fellowship and relationship with him? Isn't that more than a story? Isn't that more than information? Right? That's something that leads to transformation. And so today, as we continue on in this story, and actually I, I believe very strongly that this is tied together. It's almost like within one breath of what was happening last week as, as uh, Levi was called. But today we're going to see him clarify. Jesus is going to clarify the gospel message, and he's going to continue just to shake things up. So we're going to look at uh, Luke 5 here in a minute, but let's, let's pray and then we'll get to, get to Luke 5. God, thank you so much for your love and your grace. God, as we look to your word today, we we ask that, God, you would help us receive it. God, it is living and active, and, but God, we can reject it. We can harden our hearts to your spirit. God, open our hearts. God, our, our desire is that we put you in the proper place today, that you are God and we are not, that we've elevated you and we've humbled ourselves so we might hear from you and be forever changed. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came to give his life as a ransom for many that all who would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God, we ask today that we would not look to your text, look to the scriptures, look to the word of God as just information, but we would let it be applied to our lives as transformation. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 27, which uh, Alistair covered last week. We're going to read through uh, 39 together. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. He said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a, a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and, and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining to his disciples. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees, they do the same. But yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, You can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins, it will spill, and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine wants the new because he says, the old is better. This is the word of God 
Today, we're going to look at this passage and, and break it up into uh, the, the theme is the right gospel, right? And part of this is for you and I to have the right perspective, and Jesus wants us to have the right perspective on what he's come to do and how that's going to be accomplished. And I, the reason I, I tied in and read uh, the call of Levi, because right at the end of the call of Levi, uh, you see something there. You see, first of all, this, this great feast, right, happening after Levi was called, after Matthew was called and invited into, into the kingdom of, of God and, and to be a disciple of Jesus. There's this party that's thrown. And, and those that are watching, and oftentimes you'll see in the scriptures, there are, are different groups of people, right? There's Jesus, who's the Messiah, and then there's the, the religious elites or teachers of the day who often, you know, kind of look, look from the corner, scowling at what Jesus is doing, not wanting to, to give any authority to him. Right? Then you have the others who are maybe in the middle who are like, well, we kind of want to follow what these teachers, religious teachers are saying, but we're not really sure. This is kind of interesting what's happening over here. And then you have just sinners. People who are like, we have no chance at all. We're just, we're worth, worthless in society. We, we're unclean. No one wants to touch us or be with us. And everyone just pushes us away. So this new religious thing is totally blowing our mind. And they're, and they're a little more hungry for what Jesus has to say because the religious teachers don't like it, right? So there's this, that, that's kind of who's around typically uh, in, these, in these stories or parables or in the teachings of Christ. But, but you see that there's this party being thrown. And, and if, if you look at your outline, number one, let's, let's, let's talk about number one. The right gospel, number one, is a joyful solution to the real problem. The right gospel, right, the true gospel, is a joyful solution to the real problem. Now, we've seen Jesus already address the real problem, right? Not only did he heal the paralytic, what else did he say? Your sins are forgiven. And that's one of those things that would rile up anybody that, wait a minute, you can't forgive sins. Only God forgives sins. And Jesus is like, mm-hmm, right, only God can forgive sins. Your sins are forgiven. And they don't like that, right? They, they have these traditions, they have these ways set in place that this is how we do things. If you want your sins forgiven, this is what it needs to look like. And so it went on, and, and there's this party being thrown, and uh, we see Jesus reply, because he asked, why are you eating with sinners? And Jesus responds, he, they asked the disciples of Christ, and they're probably like, I'm not really sure. I just know he loved me and called me, so I kind of like it. And Jesus knows their hearts, and he responds. He says, it's not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Right? It's, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, we have to understand, and Alistair did a good job of this, that we see that there's a difference here. He's not actually saying that the Pharisees aren't sick. He's not actually saying that the Pharisees are righteous. They are sick people who aren't going to the hospital. Right? The sick who need a doctor, where do they end up? At the doctor right? The sick who want to pretend they don't have anything wrong, where do they end up? In the grave, not at the doctor, right? The, the, the righteous, right? And Jesus constantly calls them the righteous. They're actually the self-righteous. They self-proclaim as we're righteous. Jesus is like, I can't, I can't speak to you. I can't speak to your heart because you think you have it all together. I have not come to call those who think they're righteous. I've come to call sinners, People who actually know that there's a problem between them and God. I've come to call them, and what, what did he say he come to call them? To, to something. He didn't name them something, he called them to something. What is it? To repentance. He called them to repentance. So he didn't say, I've come to call the sinners my children. I've come to call sinners 
to repent of their sin and turn to me in faith, and then they'll be part of my kingdom and be my children. He said, I've come to call them. Repent, turn away from your old ways, turn away from your religion. Now, it gets really dicey here because as he goes in to describe the, the garment and the wineskins and talk about the banquet, he is really putting a lot of, or casting a lot of doubt on the religious systems of the day, which, which these people who are in high power don't like at all, right? But the, he says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. And then in verse 33, then they said to him, now, now there's lots of accounts here. There's three accounts in the Gospels of this story. And it's, it's hard to say. Is it, was it John's disciples who asked him? Was it the Pharisees that asked him? Was it uh, maybe disciples of the Pharisees? Or it says people came and asked him. Uh, whoever, I think all of them had the question. They're wondering about this. Because Jesus has said something. You've come to call people to repentance. Like, well, that brings up a question, Jesus. Because we practice repentance. They, and they practiced it for show. And so he said, you know, John's disciples, they fast uh, and, and uh, often, and they, and they say prayers. They fast and say prayers. It was interesting when they accosted Jesus, because John was, John was the baptizer, right? John the baptizer. He came and made the way for Christ. He was the one who pointed to Jesus and said, hey, look who's coming. He's greater than I am. He's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So when the question comes up, oh, let's talk about John's disciples. Obviously, Jesus, you have to agree with them, and they agree with you. And so they brought up John's disciples, right? They fast often and they say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same thing, but yours eat and drink. It was kind of one of those traps, wasn't it? You ever hear that? Like, like if your enemy and your friends say the same thing, it's probably the truth. Like you're, most of the time your enemies are against you, your friends are for you. But if your enemies and your friends are saying the same thing, it's probably a good thing. Like you better take, pay, pay attention to what they're saying. In this case, it's like, hey, John's disciples, your friends, and the Pharisees, your enemies, they both practice this. They both do this. And, and here's why. And here's why they brought this up. Jesus says, I've come to call sinners to repentance. The tradition of fasting was to mourn over your sin. And, and actually, it was, it was commanded uh, one time in the Old Testament. It was commanded to, to practice uh, on and around the Day of Atonement, the Yom Kippur, where, where, you, where the Day of Atonement, and the priests would come and they would make the sacrifice for themselves sacrifice for the people. They'd, they'd kill a goat and then they'd spread, the, spread blood on another goat and let the goat run away with our sins and they'd run off in the hills and our sins would be forgiven for the year. Like, yes, finally. But you come to it in somber humility saying, I'm going to fast. I'm going to seek God. I'm going I'm to lower myself. It's deep humility that I'm going to practice right here. In fact, we see it in Leviticus 16. He says this, uh, this is to be a permanent statue for you in the seventh month and on the 10th day of that month, you are to practice self-denial. This is the fast. And do no work, both the native and the alien who resides among you. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you will be clean from your sins before the Lord. It is the Sabbath of complete rest for you. And you must practice this self-denial, this fasting. It is a permanent statute. This is that day of atonement. This is what they knew. And, and from that, they, they picked up the practice and, and made it a tradition. And the tradition of the Pharisees was Mondays and Thursdays, man, we're going to fast. Mondays and Thursdays. It wasn't your typical 24-hour fast. It was like a sun, sun up to sundown fast. So if you got up early enough before the light was there, you could have a big breakfast. And then you start fasting all day long, seeking, the God, seeking God. And then uh, when the light went down, the sun went down, you could eat again. It's interesting to think about, though. Uh, most of these Pharisees were, were very much about themselves in the sh and, and for show. So the tradition, interestingly enough, they fasted in the light and they ate in the dark. 
You see the dilemma there? It, it, to me, it's kind of a telling thing of their heart. Let's talk about this idea of this practice of self-denial. It was, it was an idea of being totally occupied with being lowly or, or in a weakened state. And it was the only instance of fasting commanded in the Old Testament. Now, there are several other instances where there are examples uh, in the Old Testament. However, they are, uh, they are spontaneous and they had to do with uh, grieving or, or mourning or, or really humbly seeking God's face and, and trying to rid yourself of the distraction that would cause you to not see him. But again, the Pharisees made this a, a practice and tradition. They, were the, they, were, they made it a practice and tradition so they could be self-satisfying. They, they would satisfy themselves with this fast. And then you see the disciples. What were they doing? So they had this tradition of fasting. Even John, they picked it up. And, and it was, it was for them, it was, this is a sign of our repentance. It's a sign of our, our, our humility, our pride. Let me actually put it on a banner for you so you all can see how humble I am. That's, and Jesus accosted them, right? But Jesus' people, they were, they were eating and drinking and being merry. But here's, here's why. Jesus, for, for the disciples of Christ, Jesus was the realization of what they had hoped for, what they had prayed for. He was the realization of what, what they had fasted for. He was the once and done final sacrifice. And, and he was there. He was there. It wasn't, I hope you'll come soon. It, he's there in their midst. So what did he say to them? He said, you, you can't make the wedding guest fast while the groom is with them, can you? He's like, the wedding's happening. You're not going to a wedding. You're like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm fasting today. I'm not going to celebrate. I, I need to get my somber face on. He said, no, you can't do that. There, he said, there will be a time when, when the groom will be taken away from them. And this is amazing. This is a, a Christological statement he makes. And what he says is, is there will be a time, where he's like, nope, I'm not going to go rule as king on the throne right now. I am here to give my life as a ransom for many, and there will be a time when I am crucified, when I am killed, when I am taken away, and then you'll be somber. And then you'll be somber. The, the, the disciples of Christ knew something different. He, he was there in their midst, and they were full of joy. That's why we talk about the right gospel being a joyful solution to the real need. When we understand our, our sins can be forgiven, not just because we did it one time a year at Yom Kippur at the Day of Atonement, but because Christ came to give himself as a ransom for many for, forever, he's in your midst, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I want to celebrate the Lamb of God right in front of me. And that's what they did. The author of Hebrews says this, this is the kind of high priest we need, talking about Jesus, holy and innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, for their, first for their own sins and then for the people. He did it, talking about Jesus, he did it once for all time when he offered himself. And this is why we rejoice. This is why Jesus is the joyful solution to what we really need, to the real problem. He's the forgiver of our sins who once and done did it. This doom and Distress and gloom was replaced through Christ with hope and with joy. So what does fasting now look like? We have a fasting and prayer service once a month at the beginning of the month. And I wrote down a couple things I think fasting is, is used for now. One, it's used for show. Right? And Jesus spoke against that. In fact, here's what he says in Matthew 6. Whenever you fast, 
Don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Oh, I'm, I'm so hungry today. I'm, I'm just so weak. I, sorry, I, I lost concentration. I'm fasting for the Lord. No, you, you don't do that. Fasting should not be for show. For some, it is. He says, truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, and I, I want us to understand, there is no clear command in the New Testament anywhere for us to fast. But there are lots of models and examples, and there are lots of wins, not ifs, in the New Testament. So there are models for us to follow. So when, he says, when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Like, get that good moisturizing cream. Make sure you're, you look vibrant and healthy. So your fasting isn't obvious to others, but your father, to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret, he will reward you. Right? There should be a joy we have in, in, in seeking the Lord. And, and actually, tradition would even say that a lot, some people in, in early, the early church stopped fasting altogether. Why? Because they, the Lord was, they knew the Lord was still with them. Even though he had come, he had died, he had risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, what did he, who did he send? His spirit was there. He said, go and make disciples and I'm with you always. They're like, hey, joy and happiness all the time. It's a party all the time with Jesus. There's no gloominess here. Right? But also there were traditions of the early church that they said, no, we're going to fast. We're going we're gonna to commit someone to the Lord through fasting and prayer. We're going to to seek the Lord ourselves. And I, and I think, yeah, we, we do have the Spirit indwelling us. But we can ignore the Spirit indwelling us often, more often than we could when Jesus was right there with them, right? Because when Jesus was present, it was, it was hard to ignore Jesus being right there. But when Jesus ascended to the Father and sent the Spirit, we have all kinds of distractions around us that will, that will interfere with that, don't we? We have all kinds of those distractions. And, and, and we need to say, I need to I need quiet myself from the things I'm busy on. I need to work to, to seek the Lord. That's, that's part of what I've been working on in my sabbatical. Silence and solitude. Wanting to, to clutter, declutter my mind with the, all the information ping-ponging around in my head so I can stop and pray and stop and think about the Lord and focus on Him. That's, that's so important for us to do. Again, this is not commanded, but it is modeled and set in as, as, as an example. We see it there. Jesus says, when you fast. Acts chapter 13 as they were worshiping, not if, but as they were worshiping uh, the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. A clear model there of fasting. But we're depriving ourselves. We're saying, I want, to, I want me to empty and, and be gone. I want to be empty so when I'm empty, I can be hungry and thirsty for more of Jesus and to hear and be sensitive to the Spirit of God. Uh, Acts chapter 14, we see that when, not if, but when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord uh, in whom they had believed. So we see that, that the right gospel is a joyful solution to the real problem. right? And, and while, while we have Jesus, it's a party, and we know that that is, is a, a foreshadowing, a taste of the things to come in the kingdom of God. And now while he's not here, we don't do it for public show or recognition, but we do it in order to set ourselves apart, to quiet our soul, to empty ourselves so we can hunger and thirst for more of him. This is the right gospel, not a public display of look how great I am. That is an affront to the spiritual leaders. Number two, the right gospel we see here, it cannot be a patch to the old covenant. The right gospel cannot just be a patch to the old covenant. So Jesus gets done telling them, uh, listen, there will be a day when you fast in those days. And then he says, let me tell you this parable. He says, 
No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, the, the, uh, not only will it, uh, he tear the new one, but also the piece from the, old, uh, from the new garment will not match the old. Uh, other, other accounts of this, uh, the way they said it, is that you're taking this brand new, unlaundered patch. First of all, you're taking a brand new patch off a brand new garment. Why would you ruin a new garment for the sake of the old tattered one? Listen, I have some old tattered clothes. I call them my work clothes, right? It's usually like some Crocs and some camo pants and a plaid old shirt. I know the fashion statement's huge, isn't it? It's amazing. But I love it. There's a shirt I really love, and I just like about a month ago finally threw it in the garbage. When you look at it, like there is just no hope for this anymore, and I wanted there to be hope for it, but I couldn't see myself. And it's hard because I'm like, I don't want to wear a, a new work shirt, right? And that's my mentality. The old one's still okay. We'll just patch it up, and it, it just doesn't work. Uh, in this system, you see the religious leaders have their old framework, this old covenant, like this is what's good and right. This is our religious system. It works. We want it. And, and it kind of went two different directions. One was from the Pharisees. They held tightly to the old covenant. And they were okay with maybe Jesus helping them modify or reform Judaism with some new. And they're wondering, maybe he can help us out a little bit. So they're asking, they're inquiring, or, or maybe some of them are just, not really wanting it at all. They wanted to hold on to the old. Any of you here? Huh? Want to hold on to the old things? Yeah. Now, John's disciples, they were kind of in a different camp. They're like, hey, Jesus is here. He's new. It's new covenant. We, are, we are, have a new spirit amongst us. We, we want new, new, new. But they're like, so they're holding on tightly to the new, but they're asking, can we, can we have a little bit of the old mixed in too? Can, can we put, take the new and can we put it in something old for tradition's sake, Right? That's what, so there's kind of two different directions. But really they're saying, can we just have the new mix with the old? And Jesus addresses this. No one tears a patch. No one puts a patch on an old garment from a new one. Because and, and, it's going to tear away and the old garment's still going to be to- worn out and torn. And the new garment now is going to be ruined. And it will not match, that, that patch won't match the, the new or the old. Uh, Christ did not come to merely reform an old, worn out system but instead to introduce something new. You know, we talk about garments. It's interesting because it's talking about a wedding, right? You're with the, the groom. It's a wedding. you got to eat. And then usually a garment, like you wore the best clothes you could at this wedding. So he's kind of keeping in, in this picture as well of, hey, garments are to be new and radiant and awesome. And, and brides get dressed up for these things. And grooms get dressed up for these things. And the wedding party gets dressed up for these things. Right, the garment. But gar- in Scripture, we see garment or being clothed with with some analogies. Um, it helps us to to see maybe a standing you might have in society. Like, look at how amazing that garment is. Like the Pharisees, they wore some pretty pretty elaborate stuff to say, "Look how great I am." Right. Of course, no one should outdo the bride on her wedding day. That needs to be the, the best garment. But also, gar- uh, clothing was or garment was was shown as a a type of character like when you're clothed in a certain way uh paul says clothe yourselves what with humility and compassion and kindness and gentleness and patience he says clothe ourselves with that there's a character trait also that goes along with this clothing again they liked the outward idea of clothing Jesus was like no you, you can't hold on to the old clothes you have to have new isaiah 61 10 says rejoice i rejoice greatly in the lord i exalt my god for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Here's that garment, that righteous new character coming from our God. 
He said, just as a groom wears a turban, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, as beautiful and new and radiant as they look with the garments they're clothed in, you and I are to look that way through what God is giving us through Christ. We see this in, in Luke 15. There's a, the story of the prodigal son, right? The prodigal son takes his wealth and leaves and squanders it, and he's in the, in the fields eating the pods of the leftovers of the pigs, and, he, and it says he comes to his senses. He makes a realization about something. And, and I want us to, to understand there's, there's a really interesting thing here. He says, I, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father, because I know how he's treat, he treats his, his hired men. And I'm going to go, God, I, I, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. I will just do the work and fabricate whatever I need to fabricate. I, I, I know that's what you want of me, and you'll treat me well. And, and it's interesting that he leaves something out when he comes back to his father. He comes back, he says, uh, Father, I've sinned against uh, heaven and against you or in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. He realizes something. He, he, it's not about just performance and duty and looking the part. There's a new relationship he has. You know why? Because the father says while he was a long way off, the father ran to him. The father, in this shameful, shameful way, was watching for him day in and day out. And when he saw him a long way off, he hiked up his, the skirt of his, his robe and he started running across town. And all these Jewish men are like, oh my goodness, how, how dare he? How could he do that? That's so shameful. He should go out there and, and cast his son out. But what does he do? The son came to his senses. And the son, when he said to his father, I, I, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, we'll stop right there. He knew. It's like, I'm not worthy. I'm just not worthy. I need, I need to be new. And you're here making me new. And here's what the father said. He told the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. We need new clothes. He didn't say, hey, let's go launder what he has on now. Let's go fix the tears and all the things inside of what he has now. He said, bring out the new robe. This, you're done with this. Put on a new robe on him. Uh, and he says, uh, put on a ring on his uh, finger and sandals on his feet. And then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Why? Because this son of mine was dead and is alive. Right? He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. You see, there's a celebration that God wants to have. When we look at the right gospel, we look at the right gospel, it, it cannot be something that's just patched together with old ways. The right gospel is that you and I come to our senses realizing that the old ways are worth nothing. And the Father is standing there watching for us, waiting for us, calling to us, wanting to clothe us in His righteousness to make us a son and a daughter of the Most High God. That's, that's who He is. That's the right gospel. And these Judaizers are like, but I like all this other stuff. I like the old way so much more. I need that. Paul, Paul used to be like that, right? When he was Saul, he was an extreme persecutor of the church, but he was one of the most perfect examples of a religious elite. And he has a, a resume that would blow your minds and blow the minds of most Pharisees and, and scribes. But here's what he said about that stuff. Here's what he said about the old garment. Philippians 3. This is everything that was a gain to me, my old garment, my old ways. And by the way, if you looked at Paul in his old ways, you would not see an old garment. You would see him probably pressed perfectly. It's like everything starched, everything lined up perfectly. It was, it was like, wow, you, you're looking awesome. But he says all of that was old. He says, what I thought was gain to me, I've considered a loss because of Christ. More than that, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so I might gain Christ. 
the real gospel puts Christ right in front of us and says, come and embrace Christ. Leave behind yourself. Leave behind your stuff. Count it as loss. He says, I, I wanted to be found in, that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law. And Paul was one who did. If, you, if anyone was considered righteous, Paul was considered righteous. He had done everything right. He was born in the right place, did the right studies. He was perfect. But he was nothing without Jesus. He knew that old garment would count for nothing. And he needed to have a righteousness, not of his own, but one uh, through faith in Christ. He says the righteousness from God is based on faith. And we say, well, well, it's, a, it's what we've always done. Maybe that's you. You know, this isn't just a story or information about some, some religious leaders from one day. This is about you and I. What religious systems are you clinging to? What conversations are you and I having with our friends out in the community who are lost as all get out, but they say, they say the right Jesus thing? Like, oh yeah, I, I did this, and then, yeah, it was, Jesus is really, it's really great to know, you know, think about Jesus. They're like, yeah, and you, and you say, yeah, you're right, it's so good, isn't it? No, it's not. What you're saying is, yeah, that patch of Jesus you have, that little decal sticker you put in your water bottle, that's enough. Just keep on keeping on. It's not. It is worthless. Everything that we would consider as gain that is not Jesus is not gain and should be lost. Every old garment or old tradition that we thought was this is the right way to do it, it Jesus says, no, it's, it's me. It's all about me. The author of Hebrews, he says this, uh, for uh, if that first covenant had been faultless, like, hey, if what you were doing, that old garment was truly great, there would have been no occasion for the second no reason for the new, but finding fault with his people, God says, see, the days are coming, says the, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors. And he goes on in verse 12, he says, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. But here's the difference between these covenants. The old covenant, the old gar garment was to be a faith filled sacrifice that, that they were to practice faith it was it was the sacrifice if not given in faith would count for nothing and I, and I can't even imagine how many actual sacrifices counted for nothing because how many of us in that system like to just revert to checking off the box oh we did we did the work we put in the time it, it's all we needed to do we're good it was a faith-filled it should have been a faith-filled sacrifice but today what does the new covenant offer it's faith in his sacrifice. Faith in his sacrifice. It's still based on faith. Righteousness has always been based on faith. It's, it's credited to us as righteous once we show faith, what the scripture tells us. He goes on and says, by, by saying a new covenant, he's declared the first one obsolete. Obsolete. Now this, this is something that's going to shake up and is shaking up all of those who follow the old one all those who, who insist on the old one, all of those who find power and esteem and, and worth through the old one. No, it's, it's not the old one. It's, it's obsolete. It's, it says, and what is obsolete is growing old and is about to pass away. It doesn't mean if you're old, you're about to pass away and, and what you have is to offer is, is worthless. No, it means whatever system that you're relying on for salvation outside of Christ is going to die and fail you. Only Jesus is the true answer. Only Jesus is the true way. He is the truth. So what was faulty about the old? One was this. 
It was never finished. What was faulty about the old covenant? It was never finished. Every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time and time again, which can never take away sins. This is Hebrews chapter 10. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Oh, it's done. It's finished. The old, old one wasn't. Every year you'd come back. Every year you better, better be there in faith, offering a sacrifice to God. It was never finished. Number two, what was faulty about the old? It produced a faith struggle between legalism and shame. This is, this is why so often he comes in and says, what you're doing counts for nothing. There's no, you're not doing it by faith. Right? If you go to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see people who lived a life of faith, who, who obeyed and worked and did things based on faith. And it was credited to them as righteousness. But when you get so deep into that, you, you, you have two ways you end up going. If you don't stay right in faith, you end up in two different ways. And this the struggle is real. One is this, legalism. If I just put in my time, if I just pay my dues, if I just check off all the right boxes and have all the right things worked out, God will certainly accept me, right? The problem with that is, is that if it's not done in faith, that will lead to um, a self-righteous attitude and ultimately a realization that what? I can't really do this. I, I can't be what God wants me to be. I can't perfectly fulfill and follow all of these things that he wants me to follow. And, and here's where that leads. If you're not right in faith and trusting in faith and, and sacrificing in faith, you have this legalistic place where you're, oh, I'm self-righteous, and then I, then I count myself as so, as, as, as so hard, I, I can't even do it anymore. Now I'm in this place of shame. And when people get to a place of shame, what ends up happening is they just give up altogether. See, I can't, I can never do it. I can never live up to it. I'm out of here. Peace. That's what they do. And if you and I are living in places of self-righteousness where we're trying to check off all the boxes and be good enough and be perfect enough and look the right part and say the right things, you are heading down the wrong road. And it will be worth absolutely nothing when you see Jesus face to face. Because he's going to ask you, where was your faith? Why were you clinging so much to the old when I was right there to give you life and to clothe you with my righteousness, a righteousness you could never achieve or never accomplish on your own, but one I would give you through faith in Christ? On the other end, maybe you're hearing like, well, I just, I just can't ever live up. I can't ever be like so-and-so or such-and-such. -such. I just can't do it. You're right, you can't. But guess what? Jesus did it for you. The Hebrews author says this in 12. Uh, we have this large cloud of witnesses talking about Hebrews 11. Therefore, we lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. And I would call those things those legalistic battles we have, those, those uh, trying, to, trying to accomplish everything we need to accomplish. We set those aside. He says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. It says, for the joy that set before him, he endured the cross. And guess what he did when he endured the cross? He endured the cross despising the shame. If you feel ashamed, guess what? Jesus died for you and despised the shame. He despised the shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God saying, I accomplished it. I did it. If you come to me, I am the gracious Father who will run out to you and greet you with a kiss and wrap you in my arms and my robe of righteousness and you will never be the same again. 
People, this is not information. This is about transformation. Whoa, this is, this is about things being written down for you and I, right? Written so that what? We would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing that we would have what? Life in His name. And that leads us to the final point, number three. The right gospel, the right gospel makes all things new. The right gospel makes all things new. I, before we get into this, I, I listen, there are a lot of amazing traditions in our past heritage. I, I think a, a, one of your ladies' groups has gone through the feasts, right, of Israel. Amazing. And, and the imagery is amazing of Christ. But those things should not be done and practiced on their own just because as, as a tradition. They should be things that are practiced because they all point us to Jesus, the Savior, who has done it all for us. And we enjoy Christ with those things. So it's not that we can't have and enjoy those old traditions. But they, they on their own mean nothing. And Jesus makes all things new. It's about Jesus. The last part of this chapter 5 of Luke, 37 to 39. He said, No one puts wine into, or new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wine skins. I, I, I want you to think about this. There's a, a process. They would bring an animal skin of some, some uh, type that hasn't been stretched out yet. It's not totally cured. They'd put their new wine in it, and the new wine would what? Ferment and release gases and stretch that skin out and stretch that skin out, and then you'd have wine, and then you'd dump it into your barrels, and you'd enjoy it at your wedding feast, and then they'd have these skins that have already been stretched, and, and what's going to happen? He says, listen, you have these old stretched skins. What don't you do with them? Think, don't think they're going to stretch again. Don't try to put new wine in those and say, hey, we, we really liked this skin. This is my favorite wine skin. I'm going to put new wine into this, and it's going to be awesome. He says, no, you're, you're going to do that, and it's going to ferment. It's going to start to expand, and it's already expanded. And this brittle skin is going to tear and rip, explode, whatever you want to call it. And it'll be ruined, and the wine will be ruined now. Look what you've done. You spilled all the wine. This is the struggle, right? This is kind of what the disciples of John were thinking. Like, hey, we, we love the new. We want the new. But can't we put it in the old? Can't we, can't we put it here? And Jesus is like, no, you can't do that. Don't, don't settle for the old wineskins. And he goes further. He says, don't, and don't settle for the old wine. Now, I know that's kind of a, a conundrum, isn't it? It's like, well, you think the older the wine gets, the better it is, right? That's not really what he's talking about. What he's saying in the last part of this verse, he says, uh, and no one after drinking old wine wants new because he says the old is better. What does it mean? It means this. I like what I like. Don't change it up on me, Jesus. I'm happy with the old. I'm happy with the routine. I'm happy with the way we've been doing it forever. There will be many times in our lives when, when followers of Christ will be tempted to think that, that their way or the old way of living is better. This is how we've always done it. This is how we used to do it. That doesn't make it right. Jesus has made all things new. And we're to throw off the old, crucifying our flesh and taking up our cross and following Him. 2 Corinthians tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. The new has come. But not only was this a once and done sacrifice, to all who would believe, available for anyone who would believe. This was also a promise. This wine, this new wine was also a promise of the indwelling Spirit of God in us. And, and, and he's, he's sending his Spirit to indwell the believer. 
The person who has been transformed through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not sending the Spirit to to pour out into the old wineskins. He's sending the Spirit out to convict those who are holding on to the old wineskins. And He's sending the Spirit out to convict us so we would repent of that and throw off the old and let Him make all things new. So this wineskin and wine is a battle between our flesh and the Spirit. Alistair read some of this from Romans earlier. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Listen, there is a freedom. That's why we can have real joy. and That's why we can eat and be merry with the Savior because of what He's done for us. He's made all things new. For what the law could not do. Man, we hold on to things that just don't produce, right? That just don't work for us. What the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, the old way, but according to the Spirit, the new. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. This is about the Spirit of God. On uh, Wednesday night, we, we talked about patience. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Boy, it's teaching through those. And one of the things that stood out to me as I prepared for that and then prepared for this was, was the difference between what a fruit looks like and what a work looks like. And I mentioned this to the few that were there on Wednesday night. But, but a work, like I, I, could, I, I could just hold my tongue in line at the DMV, right? And, and my heart could still be like so sour against the DMV or so sour by the people in front. Like, you didn't pick a number. You didn't sit down. You, I mean, we could just go on and on, right? But see, that, that kind of, quote-unquote, air quotes, patience, right, is not character patience. That's just biting your tongue and fabricating patience. Listen, you and I are very good at fabricating obedience. You and I are very good at fabricating what looks like uh, obedience to Christ or looks like faith. But the real thing comes from inside. When the Spirit of God makes everything new and starts to produce a fruit, A fruit cannot be punched out in a factory by a machine. A fruit cannot be fabricated. A fruit, and the fruit of the Spirit, comes from life within us and grows out of that life. And guess what fruit does? It makes more fruit. So for you and I, as we look at this and we say, I I want this new life, it, it is about the depths and recesses of our heart being yielded to God's Spirit, the new wine He's pouring into us. Then, God, I want the new. I want to forsake the old, and I want to be attentive to what you have to say to me. The new life of the Holy Spirit indwelling us cannot be forced into the old wineskins of Judaism. Jesus is to be the cornerstone, and we are to be rooted and built up in Him alone. The things of the ceremonial law, the traditions, that were, were, they were all fulfilled by Jesus Christ for us, Now there's no need for sacrifices or priests or temples or ceremonies. Christ has taken care of that once and for all. Paul writes this, he says, about the Spirit. He says, you think about describing this work. He says, it's not about what's written down by ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. It's not about what's on the tablets of stone, but on the tablets of the human heart, because the new wine of the Spirit of God is on us. He says, there is a confidence that we have through Christ before God. It is not that we are competent in ourselves, to claim anything as coming from ourselves, 
but our adequacy is from God. He has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Listen, you and I need to stop treating Jesus as a patch to fix our old way or, or force His newness into my old box that it's not intended to fit into. We need to let Him make all things new. These are written that you and I might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in real faith, believing, we would have life in His name. Amen? Let's stand together and pray. Father, I, I thank You so much for how much You love us. God, I thank You for Your Word, that it is living and active and and God, that, that it, is, it is something that convicts us from the core. God, may we yield to it today. May we yield to your spirit, God, to your gospel, the right gospel that is coming to make all things new. God, our, our desire should be for more of you and less of us. God, for more of your new and less of the old. God, may we ne never treat you like a patch or a crutch or just a temporary Band-Aid fix. But God, you are the great physician, the great healer, the one who knows our real need, the need for forgiveness of sin, and you have accomplished that through your death and resurrection. You have atoned for our sin through the shedding of your blood that we, through faith in Christ, might be made new and might be given a righteousness, clothed in righteousness, a new garment that is from you and never from us. We trust you. We hope in you. And we give you all the praise today. In Jesus' name, amen.